Part nine of the Black Bearded Barbarian by Mary Esther Miller MacGregor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter eleven Unexpected Bombardment An Enemy's Battleships off the Coast of Formosa. During all the spring rumours of trouble had been coming across the channel from the mainland. France and China had been quarrelling over the boundary line in Tongking. The affair had been settled, but not in a way that pleased France. So without even waiting to declare war, she sent a fleet to the China Sea and bombarded some of her enemy's ports. Formosa, of course, came in for her share of the trouble, and it was early in the summer that the French battleships appeared. They hove in sight, sailing down the Formosa Channel, or straight one hot day, and instantly all Formosa was in an uproar of alarm and rage. The rage was greater than the alarm, for China cordially despised all peoples beyond her own border and felt that the barbarians would probably be too feeble to do them any harm. But that the barbarians should dare to approach their coast with a war vessel. Their rage broke out against all foreigners. They did not distinguish between the missionary from British soil and the French soldiers on their enemy's vessels. They were all barbarians alike, the Chinese declared, and as such were the deadly foe of China. This Kai Boksu was in league with the French, and the native Christians all over Formosa were in league with him, and all deserved death. So hard days came for the Christians of North Formosa. Wherever there was a house containing converts, there was riot and disorder. For bands of enraged heathen, armed with knives and swords, would parade the streets about them and threaten all with a violent death the moment the French fired a shot. In some places near the coast, the Christian people dared not leave their houses, whenever they sent out their children to buy food, often a heathen neighbor would catch them, brandish knives over the terrified little ones' heads, and declare they would all be cut to pieces when the barbarian ships came into port. Every hour of the day, and often in the night, letters came from all parts of the country to Dr. Mackay. They were brought by runners, who came at great peril of their lives, and were sent by the poor Christians. Each letter told the same tale. The lives and property of all converts were in grave danger, if the enemy did not leave. They all asked Kai Bok-su to do something to help them. Now Kai Bok-su was a man with great power and influence both in Formosa and in his far-off Canada, but he had no means of bringing that power to bear on the French, and indeed his own life was in as great danger as anyone's. He wrote to the Christians comforting them and enthusing them with his own spirit. He bade them all be brave, and no matter what came, danger or torture or death itself, they must be true to Jesus Christ. He went about his work in the college or hospital just as usual, though he knew that any day the angry mob from the town below might come raging up to destroy and kill. The French had entered Jilung Harbour, and their danger was growing more serious every day, when Mackay found it necessary to go to Palm Island, a pretty islet in the mouth of the Jilung River. It was almost courting death to go, but he had been sent for, and he went. He found the place right under the French guns and in the midst of raging Chinese. Some of the faithful students were there, and they were overcome with joy and hope at the sight of him. He gathered them about him in a mission house for prayer and a word of encouragement. Outside the Chinese soldiers paraded up and down. Sometimes, indeed, they would burst into the room and threaten the inmates with violence, should the French fire. Kai Boksu went on quietly talking to his students, 
he urged them to be faithful and reminded them of what their master suffered at the hands of a mob for their sake but in spite of their brave spirits the little company could not help listening for the boom of the french guns it was fully expected that the enemy would soon fire and when they did the christians well knew there would be little chance for them to escape but god had prepared a way out of the difficulty the meeting was scarcely over when a messenger came in asking for the missionary a christian on the mainland was very ill and wanted kai bok su to visit him mackay with his students left the island at once and went to the home of the sick man they had been gone but a short time when the thunder of the french cannon broke over the harbour the guns from the chinese fort answered and had the missionary been on palm island he and his converts would surely have been killed the chinese were no match for the french gunners bombardment destroyed the fort and killed every soldier who did not manage to get away a great shell crashed into the magazine of the fort and the explosion hurled masses of the concrete walls an incredible distance the city about the fort was completely deserted for the people fled at the first sounds of the gun as soon as the firing was over the rabble broke loose and a perfect reign of terror prevailed the mob carried black flags and swept over town and country plundering and murdering the christians were of course the first object of attack and to tear down a church was the mob's fiercest joy seven of the most beautiful chapels were completely destroyed and many others injured in the town of Pong was the home of kwa kao one of kai boksu's most devoted students there was a lovely chapel built at great expense the crowd tore it to pieces from roof to foundation then out of the bricks of the ruin they erected a huge pile eight feet high they plastered it over with mud and on the face of it next to the highway where everyone might see it they wrote in large chinese characters mackay the black-bearded barbarian lies here his work is ended they knew that the first was not true but they firmly believed the latter statement they understood little of the power of the gospel at shindien the crowd of ruffians smashed the doors and windows of the church then they took the communion roll and read aloud the names of the christians who had been baptized as each name was announced some of the murderers would rush off toward the home of the one mentioned here they would torture and often kill the members of the family the native preacher and his family barely escaped with their lives one good old christian man with his wife both over sixty were dragged out into the deep water of the Shindian River. Here they were given a choice. If they gave up Jesus Christ, their lives would be saved. If they still remained Christians, they would be drowned right there and then. The brave old couple refused to accept life at such a cost. I am not ashamed to own my Lord was a hymn Kai Bok Su had taught them, and they had meant every word as they had sung it many times in the pretty chapel by the river. And so they were not ashamed now. They were led deeper and deeper into the water, and at every few feet the way of escape was offered, but they steadily refused, and were at last flung into the river, faithful martyrs who certainly won a crown of life. These were only two among many brave Christians who died for their master's sake. Some were put to torture too horrible to tell, to make them give up their faith. Some were hung by their hair to trees, some were kicked or beaten to death, many were slashed with knives until death relieved their pain and on every side the most noble christian heroism was shown in all ages there have been those who died for their faith in jesus christ 
and these Formosan followers of their master proved themselves no less faithful than the martyrs of old. And where was Kai Bok Su while the mob raged over the country, going about his work in Danshui as of old? Only now he worked both night and day, and the anxiety of his poor converts kept him awake in the few hours when he might have snatched some sleep. He was here, there, everywhere at once, it seemed, writing letters to encourage the Christians in distress, visiting those who were wavering to strengthen their faith, teaching his students, praying, preaching night and day. He never ceased, and always the mob surged about him, threatening his life. The French ships now sailed out of Jinung Harbour and took up their position opposite Danshui. Everyone knew this probably meant bombardment, and Dr. Mackay and Mr. Jamieson, standing on the bluff before their houses, looked at each other, and each knew the other's thought. Bombardment would mean that the mob would come raging up and destroy both life and property on the hill. But just as they expected the roar of guns to open, there sailed into Danshui Harbour a vessel that flew a different flag from the French. Mackay, looking at her through a glass, made out with joy the crosses on the red banner of Britain. England had nothing to do with this Chinese-French war, but as a British vessel can be found lying around almost any port in the wide world, there of course happened to be one near Danshui. She gained a passport into the harbour and sailed in with a very kindly mission. It was to protect the lives of foreigners, not only from the French guns, but from the Chinese mobs. The ship had been in harbour but a short time when a young English naval officer carrying the British flag came up the path to the houses on the bluff. Dr. Mackay was in the library of Oxford College, lecturing to his students when the visitor entered. The missionary made the sailor welcome, and the young man told his errand. Dr. Mackay was invited to bring his family and his valuables and come on board the vessel to be the guest of the captain until the disturbance was over. It was a most kindly invitation, and Dr. Mackay shook his visitor's hand warmly as he thanked him. He turned and translated the message to his students, and their hearts stood still with dismay. If Kai Boksu, their stay and support, were to be taken away, what would become of them? But Kai Boksu had not changed with the changing circumstances. He was still as brave and undaunted as though trouble had never come to his island. He turned to the officer again with a smile. My family would not be hard to move, he said, but my valuables, I am afraid, I could not take them. He made a gesture toward the students standing about him. These young men and many more converts scattered all over North Formosa are my valuables. Many of them have faced death unflinchingly for my sake. They are my valuables, and I cannot leave them. It was bravely said, just as Kai Boksu might be expected to speak, and the English officer's eyes kindled with appreciation. The words found a ready response in his heart. They were the words of a true soldier of the king. The officer went back to his captain with Mackay's message, and with a deep admiration in his heart for the man who would rather face death than leave his friends. So the British man-of-war drew off, leaving the missionaries in the midst of danger and almost immediately, with a great bursting roar, the bombardment from the French ships opened. Sometimes the shells flew high over the town and up to the bluff, so Dr. and Mrs. Mackay put their three little ones in a safe corner under the house. But they themselves, as well as Mr. and Mrs. Jamieson, went in and out, and from the college, and the girls' school, as though nothing were happening. Every day Mackay's work grew heavier, 
and his anxiety for the persecuted Christians grew deeper. He ate very little, and he scarcely slept at all. It was not the noise of the carnage about him that kept him awake. He would have fallen asleep peacefully amid bursting shells, but he had no opportunity. The whole burden of the young church, harassed by persecution on all sides, seemed to rest upon his spirit. Anxiety for the Christians in the inland stations from whom he could not hear weighed on him night and day, and his brave spirit was put to the severest test. Only his great strong faith in God kept him up and kept up the spirits of the converts who looked to him for an example. And a brave pattern he showed them. Often he and A Hua paced the lawn in front of the house while shot and shell whizzed about them. During the worst of the bombardment they came and went between the college and the house as if they had charmed lives. One day there was a great roar and a shell struck Oxford College, shaking it to its foundations. The smoke from fort and ships had scarcely cleared away when crash and the girls' school was struck by a bursting shell. Next moment there was a fearful bang and a great stone that stood in front of the Mackay's house went up into the air in a thousand fragments. But when the firing was hottest, Kai Boksu would repeat to his students the comforting psalm, Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day. But in spite of his brave demeanour, the strain on the shepherd of this harassed flock was beginning to tell. And when the bombardment ceased and the intense anxiety for his loved ones was over, Kai Bok Su suddenly collapsed. Dr. Johnson, the foreign physician of Dashray, came hurriedly up to the mission house to see him. His verdict sent a thrill of dismay through every heart that loved him, from the anxious little wife by the patient's side to the poorest convert in the town below. Their beloved Kai Bok Su had brain fever. Too much anxiety and too little sleep said the medical man. He must sleep now, he added, or he will die. But now that Kai Boksu had a chance to rest, he could not. Sleep had been chased away too long to stay with him. Night and day he tossed about wide awake and burning with fever. His temperature was never less than 102 during those days, and all the doctor's efforts could not lower it. The awful heat of September was on, and the great typhoons that would soon sweep across the country and clear the air had not yet come. The glaring sun and the stifling damp heat were all against the patient. At last one day the doctor saw a crisis was approaching. He stood looking down at the hot, flushed face, at the burning eyes and the restless hands that were never still, and he said to himself, If the fever does not go down today, he will die. The doctor went along College Road toward his home, answering the eager, anxious questions that met him on all sides with only a shake of his head. Ahua followed him his drawn face full of pleading. Was he no better, he asked, with quivering lips. It was the question poor Ahua asked many, many times a day, for he never left the house when not away on duty. The doctor's face was full of sympathy, his own heart weighed down as he sadly answered, No. If only I had some ice, he muttered, knowing well he had none. If there was only one bit of ice in Dunsray, I'd save him yet. Over in the British consulate, Dr. Johnson had another patient. Mr. Dodd lay sick there, though not nearly as ill as the missionary. The physician's next visit was to him. When he entered, he found the servant carrying the tray with some ice on it to the sick room. Ice! cried the doctor, overjoyed. Where did it come from? The servant explained that the steamship Hailung had just arrived in Danshui Harbour with it that morning. 
The doctor entered Mr. Dodd's room. Would he give him that ice to save Mackay's life? was the question he asked. To save such a life as Mackay's? That was an absurd question, Mr. Dodd declared, and he immediately ordered that every bit of ice he had should be sent at once to the missionary's house. The doctor hurried back up the hill with the precious remedy. He broke up a piece and laid it like a little cushion on poor Kai Boksu's hot forehead, that forehead beneath which the busy brain, resting neither night nor day, was burning up. It had not been there a great while before the restless eyes lost their fire, the eyelids drooped, and wonderful sight, Kai Boksu sank into a sleep. The doctor hardly dared to breathe, if only he could be kept asleep now. He had a chance. Dr. Mackay had never been a sleeper, he well knew. He was too restless, too energetic to allow himself even proper rest. When Dr. Fraser, his first assistant, had been with him, he had struggled to persuade him to stay in bed at least six hours every night, but not always with success. But now he was to show what he could do in the matter of sleeping. All that night he lay, breathing peacefully. The next day he slept on from morning till night, and little by little the ice melted away on his forehead. He did not move all the next night, and Ahua and Mrs. Mackay and the doctor took turns at his bedside, watching that the precious ice was always there. Morning came, and it was all finished. The patient opened his eyes. He had slept thirty-six hours, and a thrill of joy went through every Christian heart in Dan Shui, for their Kai Boksu was saved. But though the crisis was over, he was still very weak, and such was the state of affairs through the country that he was in no condition to cope with them. Riot and plunder was the order of the day. News of churches being destroyed, of faithful Christians being tortured or put to death, were still coming to the mission house, and no one could tell what day would bring Kai Bok Su's turn. And now came an order from the British consul, which the missionaries could not disobey. He commanded that their families must be moved at once from Formosa, as he could not answer for their protection. So at once preparation for the departure was made, and Mr. Jamieson took his wife and Mrs. Mackay and her three little ones, and sailed away for Hong Kong. But once more, Kai Boksu stayed behind. It cost him bitter pain to part with his loved ones, knowing he might never see them again. He was weak and spent with fever, and his poor body was worn to a shadow. But he stubbornly refused to leave the men who had stood by him in every danger. The consul commanded, the doctor pleaded, but no, Kai Boksu would not go. If the danger had grown greater, and all the more reason why he should stay and comfort his people. And if God were pleased to send death, then they were all to die together. But he was so weak and sick that the doctor feared that if he remained there, there would be little chance for the mob to kill him. Death would come sooner. So he came to his stubborn patient with a new proposition. The Fujian, a merchant steamship, was now lying in Danshui Harbor. She was to run to Hong Kong, back directly. If Mackay would only take that trip, his physician urged, the sea air would make him new again, and he would return in a short time, and be ready to take up his work once more. It was that promise that moved Mackay's resolution. His utter weakness held him down from work, and he longed with all his soul to go out through the country to help the poor, suffering churches. So he finally consented to take the short journey, and pay a visit to his dear ones in Hong Kong. He did not get back quite as soon as he intended, for the French blockade delayed his vessel. But at last he stepped out upon the Dunshui dock into a crowd of preachers, students, and converts, 
who were weeping for joy about him and exclaiming over his improved looks. The voyage had certainly done wonders for him, and at once he declared he must take a trip into the country and visit those who were left of the churches. It was a desperate undertaking, for French soldiers were now scattered through the country, guarding the larger towns and cities, and everywhere mobs of furious Chinese were ready to torture or kill every foreigner. But it would take even greater difficulties than these to stop Kai Bok Su, and he began at once to lay plans for going on a tour. He first went to the British consul, and came back in high spirits, with a folded paper in his hand. He spread it out on the library table before Ahua and Sun Ah, who were to go with him, and this is what it said. British Consulate Dan Shui, May 27th, 1885. To the officer in chief command of the French forces at Jilung. The bearer of this paper, the Reverend George Leslie Mackay, D.D., a British subject, missionary in Formosa, wishes to enter Jilung, to visit his chapel and his house there, and to proceed through Jilung to Kapsulan on the east coast of Formosa to visit his converts there. Wherefore I, the undersigned, consul for Great Britain at Dunshui, do beg the officer, chief command of the French forces in Jilung, to grant the said George Leslie Mackay entry into and a free and safe passage through Jilung. He will be accompanied by two Chinese followers belonging to his mission named respectively Giam Chenghua and Yap Sun, a freighter, her Pradhanic Majesty's consul at Danshui. They had all the power of the British Empire behind them, so long as they held that paper. Then they hired a burden-bearer to carry their food, and Mackay cut a bamboo pole fully twenty feet long, and on it tied the British flag. With this floating over them, the little army marched through the rice-fields down to Jilung. It was an adventurous journey, but, wonderful though it seemed, they came through it safely. Poor Kai Boksu's heart was torn as he saw the ravages the mob had made on his churches. But what a cheer his heart received when he found that persecution had strengthened the converts that were left, and everywhere the heathen marveled that men should die for the faith of the barbarian missionary had taught. They were taken prisoners once for German spies and led far out their way. But they came back to Danshui safely, having greatly cheered the faithful Christians who still were true to their master, Jesus Christ. It was early in June, just one year from the opening of the war, that the French sailed away. They were disgusted with the whole affair. The commander of one vessel told Dr. Mackay, and they were all very glad it was over. Mr. and Mrs. Jamieson and Dr. Mackay's family returned to their homes on the bluff, and work started up again with its old vigour. But everywhere the heathen were in great glee. Christianity had been destroyed with the chapels, they were sure. Wherever Mackay went, shouts of derision followed him, and everywhere he could hear the joyful cry, Long Tsong Borji, which meant the mission is wiped out. But strange though it may seem, the mission had never been stronger, and it soon began to assert itself. Dr. Mackay went at the work of repairing the lost buildings with all the force of his nature. First he and Mr. Jamieson and Ah Hua sat down and prepared a statement of their losses. This they sent to the commander-in-chief of the Chinese forces, who had been responsible for law and order. Without any delay or questioning of the missionaries' rights, the general sent Dr. Mackay the sum asked for, ten thousand Mexican dollars, about five thousand U.S. dollars. The next thing was to plan the new chapels and see to the building of them. 
and before the shouts of Long Tsong Bo Ji had well started, they began to be contradicted by walls of brick or stone that rose up strong and sure to show that the mission had not been wiped out. Three of the chapels were commenced all at once, at Shindian, Ban Chao, and Sir Zhao. Before anything was done, Dr. Mackay and a party of his students went up to Shindian to look over the site. They stood up on the pile of ruins surrounded by the Christians, and a crowd of heathen came around gleefully to watch them in hopes of seeing their despair. But to their amazement, the little company of Christians led by the wonderful Kai Boksu suddenly burst into a hymn of praise to God that brought them safely through all their troubles. Bless so my soul the Lord thy God, and not forgetful be of all his gracious benefits he hath bestowed on thee. The heathen listened in wonder to the words of praise where they had expected lamentation, and they asked each other what was this strange power that made men so strong and brave. And their amazement grew as the chapels, the lovely new chapels of stone or brick, began to rise from the ruins of the old ones. And not only did the old ones reappear, new and more beautiful, but as Dr. McCain and his native preachers went here and there over the country, others peeped forth like the hepaticas of springtime, until there were not only the forty original chapels, but in a few years the number had increased to sixty. The triumphant shout that the mission had been wiped out ceased completely, and the people declared that they had been fools to try to destroy the chapels, for the result had been only bigger and better ones. Look now, said one old heathen, pointing a withered finger to the handsome spire of the Banchow Chapel that lifted itself towards the sky. Look now, the chapel towers over our temple. It is larger than the one we destroyed. His neighbors crowded about him, gazing up with superstitious awe at the spire, agreed. If we touch this one, he will build another, and a bigger one, remarked another man. We cannot stop the barbarian missionary, said the old heathen with an air of conviction. No one can stop the great Kai Boksu, they finally agreed, and so they left off all opposition in despair. Yes, the cry of Long Tsong Bo Ji had died, and the answer to it was inscribed on the front of the splendid chapels that sprang up all over North Formosa, for just above the main entrance to each, worked out in stucco plaster, was a picture of the burning bush, and around it in Chinese the grand old motto, Nectamen consumabatur, yet it was not consumed. End of part nine.